Well, obviously this morning we're not in Mark, so it's a little bit of a change-up, but it's a, a sweet change-up. I'm excited about this morning, and yet uh, what we're going to see is God's really kind, and a lot of what we talked about last week also pertains to where we're at in Titus this week, so I'm just thankful for God's grace and kindness in that. As we think about Titus, and maybe you don't know uh, who Titus is, but probably some of you do, because some of you have actually named your sons Titus after that. So um, as we think about Titus and who he was, we are going to see in this very beginning passage of his letter, of Paul's letter to Titus, that Paul really establishes identity in Christ. He spends time reminding Titus of who he was, who Paul is, and, and also who Titus is. And that together they have this unity in Christ. What we know about Paul. um, So the unique thing about Paul is while he's not listed like last week when Jesus calls and appoints and makes the 12 apostles, Paul is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so apostle was this definition that was given to the, the leaders of the church who were called out by Jesus himself in person and sent to go and plant the gospel into the hearts, uh, into the cities, into the communities, and into the hearts of the people, so that they would believe who God is and know him. Because those 12 men had interacted with Jesus, had seen him, had walked with him, had prayed with him, had let him down, and then been restored. And all of those beautiful stories that we read about the disciples, Paul has this similar story. He too had let God down. He had actually been uh, a a Jew, a Pharisee, one of those that that Jesus um, rebukes often because of their religion and how they pressed into religion rather than relationship with God. And, And Paul actually went even further and became this persecutor of the church, of what what Christ was doing and his disciples and his followers. So Paul first was um, in conflict with Jesus. But, but, but God, by his grace, came to Paul, who was then Saul. He was the persecutor. He came to Saul on the road to Damascus and changed him and, and met him there personally, called him to be an apostle called him to, be, to, to repent of his former ways and to rest in who Christ had called him to be. And, and we can read about that in Acts, and it's beautiful, like what God does as he converts Saul into Paul. Out of that, Paul then is a man on a mission. He is a man who is an apostle of Christ, who goes and travels on missionary journeys and plants churches, writes these beautiful letters understanding the grace that's been afforded to him. And every letter he begins with this beautiful reminder of who we are in Christ. Because before you can get to any of the other things, you have to remember your identity in Christ. You have to remember who you are. That you are a child of God. That that just as we read in Romans, this grace is for you. This free gift of God begins with God himself. So Paul is an apostle. He's a church planner. He's going around and planting these churches in the different communities that he goes to and calling men to lead those churches. And most of all, Paul is a product of grace. We can't forget that. We can't just see Paul in all of his uh, beautiful doctrine and theology and his letters 
Because we have to remember that, that all of that has stemmed from this personal interaction with Jesus that has radically changed his life. And so for us, it's got to begin there. It's got to begin with that remembering that grace has been afforded to me, so now I can go and live this way. So who is Titus? Well, Titus is unlike Paul because he is a Gentile. Paul is a Jew. Titus is a Gentile. He's, but he is a fellow laborer. He is one that has been called to labor with Paul. Paul, in his letter to the, to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, in, verse, in chapter 8, he talks about Titus. And so in 16 and 17, he says, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he has not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Also in verses 23 and 24, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. So Titus has gone with Paul on his missionary trips, has labored next to him, has heard Paul and all of the other letters that he's written to the different churches, and he's, he's heard it straight from Paul's mouth. And so he's seen the way that Paul lives a selfless life. He's seen the way that Paul suffers. He's seen the way that Paul gives of himself for the glory of God, for the planting of the church, for the edification of the church. Titus has experienced that. And then Paul left Titus in Crete to raise up the church there, to plant the church there. So, so Titus also is this church planter. And Paul is writing this letter to encourage him and what God is doing in Crete. There's an assumption that we can make coming right out of this that, that we all know and understand the gospel and can even articulate it to a degree. And I don't want us to jump to verses 5 through 9 and say, man, I need, I need to do all of these things without knowing the gospel, that, that all of these things have been done on our behalf by Christ. And so as we see these things, we need to see this, this holiness, this godliness that we're called to as a product of grace, just like Paul. So the question then becomes, this grace that we have, do we take hold of it? Do we believe it? Do we believe it for ourselves? Do we believe it for leading others, pointing others to Jesus? Do we rest in it? And does that gospel of grace produce godliness that leads to the glory of God in our lives? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word in Titus. We thank you for the encouragement that one brother gives another brother. Lord, even as we look every Sunday to our relationship with you, we know that it has implications for our relationship to each other. Lord, that the right standing, that the justification that you have made for us by laying down your life for us teaches us how to lay down our lives for each other. God, we thank you for the grace that's been afforded us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see today, that we would again taste and see that you are good that we would experience the joy of our salvation, that we have been saved by a grace that we could not purchase ourselves, but you have given to us freely. And yet, even as it's a free gift, it's not a cheap 
gift. It's a costly gift. Lord, and out of that, would you change our lives so that we would live godly, holy, self-controlled, lives above reproach. Lord, not for our fame, but for your fame, for your glory, that many would see and hear and give praise to our God. God, that's our hope. It's our desire this morning. We thank you that we can pray with confidence. Lord, knowing that this is the prayer that's being prayed by your people throughout the world. Lord, I think of the Mintons in South Africa and the Fast family in Portland and the many people in Brevard County that we stand alongside that are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ today. God, and that's barely scratching the surface of your church and what you're doing. So, Lord, we just thank you for it. We pray that you would save today, that there would be some who would hear for the very first time and that that hearing would turn to belief. Thank you for it. In your name, amen. Well, we see in Paul's uh, letter to Titus that this call to a different way of living, a call to godliness and holiness, we see that he, he calls him in, in chapter 1 out of this knowledge that he has of the truth. Verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul is immediately jumping to Titus. You need godly people, godly men, a godly community gathered around you to plant this church. You need godly men raised up to run with you. And Jesus says that, and, and, and he's reminding him that Jesus is doing this. That it's not something that he needs to do, but that Jesus is doing this to open his eyes to that. Well, why do we need this godliness? Can't we just operate in grace? But, but grace has to produce godliness. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, the gospel is something like an illustrated paper. The preacher's words are the letterpress, but the pictures, what is seen, are the living men and women who form our churches. And like when people take up such a newspaper, they very often do not read the letterpress, but they always look at the pictures. So is the church. Outsiders may not come to hear the preacher, but they always consider, observe, and criticize the lives of the members. Why do we need this godliness? Because that might be what all that people see. They may not come into a pavilion to hear the preaching of the gospel, but they'll come next to you in life. They'll come and, and sit next to you at, an inter, at you know, some sort of entertainment, whether it's a, a ball game or a movie. They'll, they'll be next to you at work. They'll be next to you in school, and they'll see godliness. And that godliness may be all that they see. That might be the only introduction that they have. To who is God and what has He done? And so we're called to this godliness. But we're called to this godliness because of this gospel identity. We see in verse 1, Paul understands his position. He is a servant of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And while we may not hold the office of apostle, we are called and sent as proclaimers of this gospel, this good news. All of us, if we are in Christ, we are called to be a proclaimer of this good news. We don't get to sit back 
and just be a consumer, we get to participate. We're invited to participate. Maybe even now you're thinking of somebody that, that God has put you next to. And, and maybe they've seen godliness in your life, but they need an explicit gospel. They need to be pointed to the fact that I don't produce this godliness. God has done that in me. And so I pray that even as you're thinking about that, that, that God would give you boldness and courage to speak that truth so that they would hear the good news. That they don't have to go and try to fix themselves, but they have a Savior who has come. So Paul rests in this identity. Since Jesus is both Savior and Lord, He is His servant. He has no other choice but to serve in whatever God calls Him to. And then you go back and you read the life of Paul and look at the life of Paul throughout Scripture, and you, you really begin to see that he actually believed this. He actually believed that he was a servant of the Lord because he went to places where no one else would go. He walked through things that we would shy away from, except that we too know that God, we are servants of this great Lord Jesus. And so if he calls us, he will go with us and take us through those things. So we see Paul rests in this identity as a servant and apostle of God, that he is God's elect, that God chose him, called him out of his sin and darkness, put the hope of eternal life into him. In verse 2, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So Paul's reminding Titus of who he is, but he's also reminding him of the God that they serve. The God that they serve does not change. He never lies. And so if he's been faithful in all of these things, he will continue to be faithful. So I imagine that as, as Paul reminds Titus of who God is, Titus remembers things that happened while he was with Paul. He remembers the way that God was faithful while he was with Paul. The way that he brought them through shipwrecks and the many different things and trials that they walked through. And if God is faithful and he doesn't change, then that means whatever trials Titus is walking through now, God is still with him. God is still faithful in walking him through those things. And so this is the encouragement that Paul writes to Titus in. This eternal word that it's been from the beginning and it will be until eternal, eternity. The eternal hope. And then... Paul reminds Titus that both of them are called to preach this good news. Verse 3, At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's the, that's the beauty of the church, is that for some reason, God has chosen to use his church as the proclaimers of his good news. He's invited us to do that, whether that's on Sunday mornings or whether that's Monday morning when we wake up. And there's only enough cereal for one of the kids. And now the other kids have to lay down their lives. And, and we, we say it, you know, and it, it's like, eh, that's kind of hokey. No, that's reality. Like, if there's any righteousness in any of us, if there's any selflessness in any of us, it's because of this work of Jesus Christ. The fact that I could say, you know what? You can have that cereal. is because of what God has done. And so we, we bring it down to that level. We believe it to the very day-to-day minutia of life. 
that if anything is happening that is good and praiseworthy, it's because Jesus has done it. And so we rest there. And that's what Paul is reminding Titus of. In verse 4, he, he does this beautiful thing. And we can kind of see it as this greeting, like this formal thing. But the reality is there's a truth here that we all need to see. And it needs to change the way that we live. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. To Titus, my true child. Let's not miss this. They're not related by blood. As a matter of fact, they're very different. The fact is that Paul is a Jew. And Titus is a Gentile. And those two things are not always compatible. As a matter of fact, we've seen in God's Word where several times... The Jews try to make the Gentiles walk in Jewish ways. And yet, God is doing this new thing where they are united together in Christ. And so the fact that Paul, a Jew, can say to Titus, a Gentile, you are my true child, is is a big deal. Not only were they not always hospitable to each other, but there were many times where they were actually hostile to one another, not not Paul and Titus, but the two groups were hostile to one another, abusive to one another. So why then is this true? Like why, why does he say true child? Why not just child? Because family is the image. We've talked about this a couple of times. Family is the image and brotherhood in Christ, a uniting together in Christ is the actual reality. We get it backwards often. We think that family's the real thing, and so we project that onto our relationship with Christ and say, now we're like family. But the reality is that being united together in Christ is the reality. Family then becomes this image and this picture of that true reality. According to the flesh, these men should not be united to each other. They have every reason to hold on to the things that would separate them. And yet in Christ, they are Father and Son. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. When we think about the current state of the church in America, when we think about these um, political alliances that are happening and political allegiances that are happening, when we think about the, the racial divorce that is happening within America and the church, we have to remember that God has called us to be one body, to be members of one another. Like we can't separate. We, we can't, our body can't separate and become different things. It is one thing united together in Christ Jesus. And so if we have disagreements or if we don't see things the same way, it's okay because we are united together in Christ. And can we lay those things down, those differences in opinions, 
of how things should look, trusting in the one who is making all of those things actually happen, who is actually uniting a people and a body together for his glory. Can we do that? And, and I just think that we, we have this gift in Titus to see that Paul understands that while, while Titus is a Gentile and he is a Jew, they have a greater unity than, than their ethnicity, than their race, than their past, than their family. They have a unity in Christ. And so, in a day where you and I may see things differently and have different contexts, circumstances, thoughts, and opinions. May we remember that we are true family. And then, may that grow outside of this pavilion, right? Because I think in this pavilion we can kind of, yeah, we can get around that, but, but the reality is that there is a larger body of Christ that we are united to, that we are members of. And so if that's true for us in this small community, it's true for us in the larger community of God. May we remember and rejoice in the fact that the blood of Jesus unites more than political party, more than race or ethnicity, beyond even our blood, even our family, and makes us members of one another. What a gift to have that in verse 4, which seems like this segue into a, into a larger message. But the reality is that Paul believes that to be true and is reminding, that, reminding Titus of that. That we share a common grace, a common faith, faith, a common peace. You see, this is the community that we've been grafted into by faith. A community that we are sinners. And so Paul would always remind that he is, he is the biggest sinner. He is the chief of sinners. He is the one who persecuted the church, but God in His kindness has drawn him to Himself. Radically changed the way that he thinks and believes so that he could actually preach these things to be true. And so he reminds Titus, hey, you too are a sinner saved by grace. And we remind each other, we are sinners saved by this grace, gathering together at the foot of the cross of our Jesus, who has reconciled us and made us holy. And then we point to him as members of one body, as members of the body of Christ, a people who rest in the atoning work of the Son of God on our behalf. We rest there. Even as we read later on, this production of godliness, this, this being above reproach, and all of these things that we go out and do, it's got to be out of this identity of resting in the work of Christ. Otherwise, it becomes self-righteousness, of resting in our own righteousness. But he said that he's done these works for us to walk in. He's produced it. And now we have the opportunity to walk in these things as sinners gathered at the foot of the cross. And, and we pray that we won't forget that our mission is together. None of us can do it on our own. We have been given this gift, right, as members of one body with different functions, different gifts. All of us are required to show this beautiful, surpassing splendor. Right? We talked about what other beauty demands such praises. Well, they're not going to see that in one of us, but they might see it in all of us as the church reflecting the glory of God together. And so we can't just do it alone. But we have the opportunity to do it together. As we think about church planting, as we think about what does it look like for God to raise up His church here in Cape Canaveral, we see what it looks like in verses 5 through 9. 
Remember, it's out of grace that any of this happens. What is the outflow of this grace and peace God has worked on behalf of the believer? The grace and peace of verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The fruit of that, if, if this good news has captured our hearts, it flows into all of life. We look at each other's lives and we begin to see the fruit of that grace. If we love our wives, that is a fruit of grace. If wives love their husbands, if we love our children, if we love our parents, if we honor them, if we respect them, if we have a compassion for our coworkers, all of that is because of this grace that's been worked in us and it's producing this godliness. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean and Paul has left Titus there to plant the church so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, I was given a gift this week to be with a bunch of other pastors and man, some of those guys could preach. And one of them, uh, a, a pastor named Zach, he preached on God putting chaos into order and we see that in verse 5. That's the call to Titus, is to put into order the church. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do that by finding men of God. And it's men and women of God. Kids, young people, old people, all of us together in Christ, gathered together, walking in this godliness, walking in a way that is above reproach, walking in all of the the holiness of God. He says, be holy as I am holy. We have this call to us to represent him. And so Paul calls Titus to set into order. If we see order in our marriage, if we see order in our household, if we see order in our children that would not run to debauchery or insubordination, which is being wild and rebellious, If any of that is true, and we all know, our own hearts first run to being wild and rebellious. If there's any peace in our hearts, it's because of the work of Jesus. And we see it because when you see kids, they're wild and rebellious. Like, that's that's how they come out. (laughs) They want their own, and then they trained up. And so the order that comes is through the work of Jesus Christ. These men that Paul is calling Titus to surround himself with must not be proud and they must not be self-reliant. You see, they have a dependency. These men and women of God have a dependency upon God. They rest there. They pray. They ask God, hey, God, I can't do this. Will you do this? And so as we as a church pray and say, God, Will you change us into your image? Would you conform us into the image of Christ so that some would see, so that your church would grow, so that we would have greater depth of belief and understanding and faith? We remain not self-reliant, but Christ-reliant, dependent on Jesus. We have to be a servant who loves righteousness and pursues it. That's key. Like, you can love righteousness, but say that's, I'm not going to pursue it. But true love of righteousness means that I want that to be a fruit in my life. I want it to play out in the way that I'm hospitable 
Verse 8, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Listen, we can read all of these things and we can make them this nice checklist and we can do a pass or fail, but the reality is that if God has called us to plant, if God has called us to be his church, whether it's a church plant or whether it's a church that's been there for 40 years, the reality is that if he's called us to be disciples of Christ, then he will produce those things in us. He's faithful. He's not going to begin a work and then say, okay, now you finish the work. No, he who began the good work in us is faithful to complete it. But we forget and we think, man, I have been around Christ and I have read his word for 20, 30, 40 years. I should, there should be more fruit in my life. Listen, you can't produce the fruit. I can't produce the fruit in my life. If there's any fruit, that's worth celebrating. I don't care how long it takes. Like, like, let's rejoice in that. Let's celebrate what God is doing. If we love our, our spouses, if we love each other, that's a gift of grace. Let's celebrate it. And yes, long for more. And pray that God would give it. Pray that there would be more people whose, whose marriages would be reconciled, whose uh, estrangement from parents would be reconciled. That those who, who, like Paul and Titus, come from different backgrounds and, and let those backgrounds dictate how they should treat each other, if they can be reconciled, let's rejoice in that fact. And let's work, let's come alongside and point people to the fact that that's true. God has reconciled us by the work of His Son. And so we would pray that all of these things, that we would be leaders who, as God's stewards, right? And, and remembering that in verse 7, as a leader, as an overseer, as God's steward, we must be above reproach. Listen, that's a lot. When you think about above reproach, one of the translations says blameless, and then you look at your life and you're like, I'm not blameless. I actually have a lot of things that, that you would rightly blame me for. And you say, well, how can I ask us then to be above reproach? He actually says it twice in this passage. And so there's an emphasis being put on it. And let's remember... That while we may not be above reproach, we have one who is. Jesus has come, and while we were not blameless, He is. While we were not perfect, He is. And He came and He walked perfect righteousness on our behalf. And we looked at it a couple months ago when we looked in Colossians. Like this idea that because Christ has worked perfect righteousness on my behalf, and if I am in Christ, then that righteousness is available for me to walk in by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so we go and we walk in those things today. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. As believers in the gospel, we have a righteousness that's not our own. The perfect righteousness that Jesus walked in His incarnation is not simply on our record, but it is accessible for us to walk in now. This is the fullness of the grace of the finished work of Christ. That our sins are cleansed and our wills conform to His. This conforming and transforming is taking place inside the believer through the manifest power of the Holy Spirit. And so we rejoice when we look at this list and we see that there is self-control, upright, holy living in any of our lives. That, that there's any semblance of discipline. That there's any order that's taking place. All of it is produced because of what Christ has done. So we rejoice in that this morning. 
This is the goal of, follow, of finding qualified leaders, of finding people who would say, yes, I want to go and live that way for the sake of the glory of Christ. We would hope that Jesus would be worshipped rightly. Pray that we would be leaders because our hearts have been changed because we recognize the grace that's been afforded to us, that we would lead in righteousness and holiness because we know that we have this Savior who has laid down his life for us and we would walk in the things that he's purchased for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. God, we thank you that all of this is true. God, we thank you for the the particular call to, to lead in holiness, to lead in godliness, to lead in righteousness, not in and of ourselves, but because of the holiness and godliness and righteousness that Jesus has led us in. That he has drawn us to be members of his body so that now, because he walks in it, we walk in it. God, I thank you that you've called us to be the church. I pray that we would uh, over the, the, the next week, just meditate on that, think about that, pray about that, Lord, and that you would point to areas of our life where we can walk in your holiness and in your righteousness. God, we just rejoice that any of this is true in our lives. We thank you for the grace that you've afforded us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.